morning. All right. So I have uh, the announcements today uh, and also the call to worship. So if you look, hopefully where you were seated, there are copies of the bulletin. I'm going to be on the back page walking through just some recent announcements, things for your consideration, and certainly uh, at this church, things that you can be involved in for your growth and uh, sanctification. So first and foremost, uh, tonight, Family Ministries is going to be meeting. Again, that's for students in fifth grade all the way through high school. Um, you guys, I think we, we know this is actually the last Family Ministries gathering before the May uh, retreat. So if you can make it, that starts again at 6.30 tonight. Uh, the next thing uh, to highlight, I think they met yesterday morning, would be the men's small group. Uh, that's meeting here at the church on the second and fourth Saturdays of each month. So that means then the next one would be Saturday, May 8th. Uh, no? Canceled because of Marietta Day. Okay, so you're looking at then two more weeks from the 18th. I think that'd be the 22nd if my math is right. Um, that's going to be downstairs. So if you're not, I'm going to jump ahead. Then Marietta Day is coming on May 8th. That, as we all know, right, is the gathering here in the community uh, where there is kind of like the world's or at least for Marietta the largest yard sale known to man um, it's a great opportunity for us as a church though to meet and greet people in the community uh, to have good discussions and hopefully as with all things uh, just present the gospel and allow the Holy Spirit to do only what it can do so um, for all the men that can't attend that day well now we're hopeful that you can attend on Marietta Day I do think there are some uh, Sign-ups in the back for food and other donations, right, Tim? It's all online. I'm sorry. So there you go. It's all online. All right, so then I'm going to jump back up to the fellowship cookout. That's going to be at the last Sunday on May 30th. That's going to be held here uh, at the church. It'll be held outside. Again, uh, the plan would be for us immediately after the uh, service to gather together and to enjoy the fellowship of a meal, which we really have not been able to do coming up now here on about 15 months. And we certainly know uh, for this church, uh, we do well at eating food and talking and enjoying each other's company. And this will certainly allow us to do that outside again. So we're, we're looking forward uh, for that event. The next thing to uh, highlight, again, even for volunteers, but certainly just for prayer, is Vacation Bible School uh, this summer. That's coming on August 9th through the 13th. Uh, first, you know, again, uh, this is one of the things that we do that does get a lot of uh, participation and involvement in the community. So for us, it's a wonderful opportunity, especially with these young hearts, to hear again, uh, what the good news of the gospel is. They're certainly not necessarily hearing that in school, <laughs> especially in the public schools. So this is a wonderful opportunity for us to really provide to them uh, the good news of what the gospel is. And certainly um, it is really a wonderful uh, opportunity for us to serve those uh, outside of just these church walls. But to make it work, uh, there does need to be quite a few volunteers, and what's up behind me right now are a series of the various things uh, that are needed, positions for folks to uh, volunteer for in each of the evenings. I think it's going to be Monday through Friday, right? It's five days. Um, if you have any questions, you can see my sister, Laura Schwarn, or sorry, Laura Perkins. Sorry, Tim. Sorry, bad habits, right? They die. They die hard. 
Tim, just letting you know, she's still my sister. Treat her good. All right, so, um, so that's Vacation Bible School. Uh, next, just some other service opportunities for us to have. Uh, the next service day at Donegal Food Bank is on May 5th. Uh, that's from 1.30 to 3.30. I've already hit uh, Marietta Day, and I've certainly already hit the volunteers uh, for VBS. Um, other things just for people to uh, be aware of that are going on. Each morning, um, on Sunday mornings at 9.15 downstairs is prayer. Uh, again, a wonderful opportunity for you uh, to gather together to pray, certainly for this service, to pray for Sam, uh, the worship team, uh, as we present, and certainly for eyes to be opened, ears to be hearing, and hearts to be receptive uh, for the good news that we know that we have uh, through Scripture. Uh, another thing is on May 16th, our missionary Phil Spradlin will be coming. And then last but not least is updating the directory. Um, if you are not in it, it is online, uh, but if you could see Allison Schmucker, I believe there is something on the back table for that. Yeah, okay, good, I got the thumbs up on that. Um, please, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to be able to know who's in the church, uh, but also for us to be able to send emails, certainly. Um, I'm not going to sit here and, and embarrass folks like my dad did a great job of when people's birthdays are. And, um, but it's certainly, though, a great way for us to pray, pray and care for each other. Okay? So if, you have, uh, if you're not in it, please see Allison or please see the information in the back. With that being said, uh, the call to worship today is Psalm 113. I'd ask you to stand uh, as we read and prepare our hearts for worship and for this service. Okay, so Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting... The name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Who is like our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? Who raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people? Who gives the barren woman a home? making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. i 
Uh, a couple of prayer requests to bring to your attention this morning as we prepare to go before the Lord in prayer. Uh, first of all, just an update on Randy Hilton. Well, um, been trying to get a more recent one than Thursday, but uh, when I was in contact with Randy on Thursday, he had indicated that uh, he is home. He's not in the hospital, but he is uh, still struggling pretty significantly uh, with coughing and the pain in his lungs and inability to, to really get good breath. And so Randy asked that we continue to, to pray for him, and I told him I would uh, pass that along to you all and also pass along his appreciation to you for praying for him. Uh, and also we want to be in prayer for one of our own, Ralph Scott, who has an MRI on Wednesday. I will uh, let him tell you the circumstances uh, surrounding his injury, if he is interested, um, 
Uh, when you speak, if you want to know more about that, talk to Ralph. But uh, he uh, he has a shoulder injury that he needs to get uh, checked out. The severity of it, and we certainly are are praying that it is not severe and that it is something that they'll be able to uh, to treat and get Ralph back in action uh, soon. Uh, but uh, uh, please be in prayer for Ralph this week as he anticipates that test on Wednesday. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. And before I lead us uh, verbally, uh, we're going to take some time just quietly uh, before the Lord, uh, asking Him to prepare our hearts and our minds to worship Him well together today. And also just to bear our, our, our own souls before him uh, before we pray together corporately. So let's take some time silently in prayer together. Father, we thank you for another day and another opportunity that we have to gather, uh, to worship together as your people. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be called sons and daughters of the Most High God through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, the one to whom all glory and honor is due. Lord, we pray that you are glorified uh, in our praises together this day. Lord, we pray for a sensitivity to the work of your spirit in our hearts and our minds as uh, we worship and as we fellowship, as we pray together and as your word is proclaimed. Uh, Lord, that you would find humble and hungry hearts that desire to know you and to honor you in all that we do. Lord, we confess, I confess how easy it is to get swept up into uh, the problems of this world and Lord, we are called to be caring and compassionate and we want to do those things, uh, but you also call us to rest in you and to not find our comfort or our security in what this world has to offer, uh, but to rise above those things through faith in Christ and to live as shining examples uh, of the grace of God in a world that so desperately needs it. And so as we worship, Lord, I pray that this would be a time, uh, Lord, where our hearts and our minds and our spirits are recharged and encouraged and, uh, Lord, uh, we're needed, uh, convicted uh, Lord, that we would set aside those things that distract and the sin that so easily entangles that we would be able, as your people, as a church, uh, to run the race of this life that you have set before us with endurance for the glory of the one who gave his life to redeem us. Lord, you have promised to use every trial for the good of those that love you and are called according to your purpose. 
And so, Lord, we pray this morning for the, the two requests that we are aware of, uh, Lord, for uh, Randy and for Ralph, Lord, knowing that uh, as you are at work in their lives and, and in the midst of uh, the physical ailments that they are dealing with, Lord, that you are at work for their good and for your glory. And I pray for them, Lord, that uh, even as things are uncomfortable, Lord, even as uh, Ralph is in pain and as Randy is struggling to breathe, Lord, I pray that you would give them a great sense of confidence in you and your ability to be at work even as we struggle in this life. Lord, we pray for healing in both instances. And Lord, we know that uh, the ultimate result of this trial would be for, their for your glory and for their good. And Lord, as they await that outcome, Lord, we pray for strengthened faith and confidence in you. And I pray that, Lord, for all of us. None of us are immune to facing struggles. None of us are immune to the temptation to sin. None of us are immune to the, uh, the trap that worry can be in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us for greater faithfulness. Lord, I, I pray that you would strengthen each one of us in our faith, Lord, that we would uh, cling to you uh, in those times of, uh, of doubt and struggle. And Lord, for those times when you, when you grant us seasons of, uh, uh, of things going smoothly and well, Lord, that we would uh, not delight ourselves in our circumstances, but Lord, we would give thanks to you for uh, the rest and the peace before the next trial that is to come, because that is the reality that each one of us will face until Christ returns are until we are before you in heaven. In this world, we will have troubles, but we fear not. Because we are united with Christ, our Lord and Savior. Jesus, we want to honor you today. We want to glorify you in our worship, and not just in that, but Lord, in, in our worship, in the way that we live our lives when we leave from this place. And so I pray that your spirit would be at work. Lord, I pray that none of us would be content with where we are spiritually, but Lord, that you would give us a greater hunger and a desire to know you and to, and to follow you and to fellowship with you. Lord, that we would be content in our circumstances, that we would be content in everything else that we face in this life, but Lord, when it comes to our walk with you, that we would want more and more of you and be satisfied with nothing less. This is a God-sized prayer, and that is why we bring it before you this day. And Father, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. in our morning 
the love that casts out fear. You are working in our waiting. You're sanctifying us. When beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. are still to prosper you have not forgotten us you're with us in the fire and the flood you're faithful forever perfect in love you are sovereign over us you are wisdom
morning we continue our study of John's account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 found in John chapter 6 verses 1 through 15. I'd ask you to turn there as I prepare to read those verses to you. It will also be projected on the screen, Lord willing. All right.
John chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving, when, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let us pray. Lord, we do pray that you would speak powerfully to us from your word this day. Lord, our greatest need is to see you as you are and to respond appropriately in faith to that reality. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us that our eyes would be open to see you in your glory. Lord, for believers that our faith would be strengthened and for unbelievers, Lord, that saving faith would be awakened within them. Lord, that as we... Uh, behold you in your glory, uh, that we ourselves, as, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, that our lives would look more and more like the one who gave his life to redeem us. Do this work, Lord, for we cannot do it ourselves, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now I'm going to begin this morning with a blast from the past, a list from the Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, and I just want to warn you ahead of time that this might be the most convicting part of the sermon. So take your shoes off and allow Richard Baxter to stomp on your toes this morning as he already has mine. (laughs) This is Baxter writing on the signs of a flesh-pleaser 
and sensualist. And this is what he writes. He gives 10 signs of someone who is a flesh pleaser. And what he means by that is someone who is living to gratify their own desires. That's what sensuality means. It describes someone who is living for their senses, the things that make them feel good. And so Baxter gives us 10 qualities or 10 evidences of someone who is living in this way. And obviously being a Puritan, this was written a long time ago, so some of the wording is going to be a little funky. I will try to translate as best possible. But number one, when a man in his desire to please his appetite does not do it with a view to a higher end, that is to say to the, prepare, to, to say to the preparing himself for the service of God, but does it only for the delight itself, someone who is living for the next pleasurable experience. Number two, when he looks more eagerly and industriously after the prosperity of his body than of his soul. Number three, when he will not refrain from his pleasures when God forbids them, or when they hurt his soul, or when the necessities of his soul call him away from them, them being those sinful pleasures. Convicted yet? In this world that we live in, that it drives us and it communicates to us at every turn that we're supposed to follow our hearts and live for our desires? Uh-uh, says Baxter. Number four. When the pleasures of his flesh exceed his delights in God and his holy word and his ways and the expectations of endless pleasure, when he had rather be at play or feast or other entertainment or getting good bargains or profits in the world than to live the life of faith and love, which would be a holy and heavenly way of living." Put simply, someone is living for sensual pleasure when they choose to live for the pleasures of this world rather than denying those temporary pleasures for the eternal pleasures of the things that honor God. Number five, when men set their minds to scheme and study to make provision for the pleasure of the flesh... And this is first and sweetest in their thoughts. Now, what I think Baxter is referring to here is those that we would call liberal theologians or even those who hold to uh, theological views that emphasize God fulfilling our temporary needs over and against what he does for us eternally. The prosperity teaching or theology that would seek to, uh, teaching that would seek to deny what the scriptures teach concerning what is truly pleasing to God. Those who would set their minds to scheme and study ways to justify this way of living and then try to lead others in that. Number six, when they had rather talk or hear or read of fleshly pleasures than of spiritual and heavenly delights. What do we do with our free time? 
Number seven, when they love the company of merry sensualists better than the communion of saints, in which they may be exercised in the praises of their maker. We would rather hang out with unbelievers than those with whom we share a common Savior, and we are called together as the people of God to worship. Number eight, when they consider that the best place to live and work is where they have the pleasure of the flesh, they would rather be where they have things easy and lack nothing for the body rather than their wet rather than where they have far better help and provision for the soul, last phrase, though the flesh be pinched for it. Isn't that a great phrase? We would rather live and work and do things where life is easy than where we ought to be and where we would find true joy, even though there may be temporary pain. i got to tell you, as I was reading this, Baxter was crushing me because I see levels of guilt in my own affections in almost every one of these points. Number nine, when he will be more eager to spend money to please his flesh than to please God. Number 10, when he will believe or like no doctrine but easy believism and hate mortification as too strict legalism. Now what he means by mortification is the Bible's call on the Christian life for us to be actively seeking to put to death the sinful desires that rise up in our life. So when we would rather choose the, 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 the easy message rather than the one that calls us to die to self, then we might be influenced by sensuality. And he concludes by saying, by these and similar signs, so I get the sense he probably could go on, sensuality may easily be known, indeed, by the main bent of the life. So lest we wither and faint under this scathing list from Richard Baxter, he he, he shows us that, no, listen, I'm not talking about those who are tempted. I'm not talking about those who may occasionally fail. But those whose lives are marked by these ten qualities are not living under the power of the Spirit, but they are living under the power, the influence, the drive of their own fleshly desires. What on earth could this have to do with the feeding of the 5,000? Well, I'm glad you asked. As we will see in studying this one miracle that is covered in all four of the Gospels, the only miracle that all four Gospel writers record, not just today, but as we move forward and find out the rest of the story in the weeks to come, we are going to see that the big problem of the crowd was their failure to understand the significance of the things that were happening before them. They were so driven by their sensual desires, their sensual need, that, that they failed to see who it was that was performing this great miracle from which each of them benefited. They loved the pleasures of the flesh 
more than they desired to, to, to know and understand the one who was before them. This morning, we're going to cover this passage under two headings. First, we're going to look at the miracle, and secondly, and, and, and much more briefly, we are going to consider the misguided. And I'm going to spend a lot less time in point two today simply because the rest of this chapter fleshes that out so beautifully. We're going we're to be warned verse after verse coming up why we need to guard against being numbered among those who are misguided concerning the identity of Christ. The miracle and the misguided. Let's begin by considering verses 8 through 13, the miracle. I'll read that to you again. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the, bar, from the five barley loaves left by those who had, been, those who had eaten. Now, again, this was, is one of the big miracles in Scripture in terms of, uh, of uh, the fact that it's recorded by all the gospel writers and also by the sheer number of eyewitnesses of this miracle. And, and it is a miracle that has not gone without attack from those who would seek to undermine the authority and the reliability of Scripture. In fact, a, a common view among those that we would call liberal theologians, that is, those who would reject the inerrancy of Scripture, a, po a popular view among these people is that the miracle in the feeding of the 5,000 is actually a wave of generosity that overcame the crowd as they saw the boy give up his lunch of five barley loaves and two fish to feed the masses. Their argument is simple. It's when the, those immediately around saw his generosity, they too were inspired to share of their lunch. And as they shared their lunches, those who saw them began to share theirs and so on and so forth to, to where everyone got a bite to eat. And while such a scenario sounds nice to our fleshly selves, we want something to feel good about. Oh, look at the, the kindness and the generosity of these people. We need to understand that it's really just a demonic effort to undermine the authority of Scripture, and we can view it as nothing less. Not only that, it misses the point of the miracle itself. A miracle, by definition, is something that cannot occur naturally. 
Just as Jesus turning water into wine in chapter 2 displayed his creative power, so does this multiplication of the bread and the fish in chapter 6. Not only that, but this miracle is filled with significant details that are lost if we subscribe to anything other than a literal historical understanding of the miracle. So can we all agree that this indeed is a miracle? This is not some wave of of generosity and sharing. Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish. Not to the point where everybody got a little smidgen, but until their bellies were full. If you remember from last week, uh, as we considered verses 1 through 7, we we saw Philip's struggling faith under the microscope. And in verse 8, we we see that he wasn't the only one who was viewing circumstances from a natural perspective. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, speaks up and points out that there was a boy present who, who had some food. Wasn't a lot of food, five barley loaves and two fish. And before you think about a loaf of bread as being what you pick up at the grocery store, which, you know, it's, you know, a foot and a half long and has several slices in it. You got most families can eat for a week unless you have teenage boys. And then you can eat for about half a week on a loaf of bread. These would have been little cakes. Okay, we're talking lunch here. So, so he wasn't coming in from the local Weiss with, you know, five stacks of, of, of nature's own. These were small cakes that he had. And, and John goes so far to point out what kind of loaves of bread they were, barley loaves. And these details are significant because it emphasizes the point that John is an eyewitness to what's going on. He he doesn't just want you to know that some disciples spoke up and said some things. He tells you who says what and who did the saying. And not only that, but what kind of bread it was. And the barley loaf would be considered like the poor man's bread. So it wasn't even the good stuff. But John points these things out to to remind us that, hey, you know, as you read these accounts uh, of this miracle, I was there. I know exactly what happened. I I saw it all, all. And and even the fact that it was a barley, these were barley loaves is a significant detail, but because it ties us to another miraculous feeding that you find in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 38 through 34. I want to read this to you so you can see the similarities. It says, And Elisha came down to Gil- again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. There were hungry people. And as the sons of the prophets, prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds. 
and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. Probably not a good move. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said then, Bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour pour out for some of the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal-Shalalashah, Bringing the, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. Sound familiar? So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Significant, right? In verse 10, Jesus instructs the disciples to have everyone sit down. Now remember, 5,000 men plus women and children probably equaled over 20,000 people. And and in verse 10, we see another eyewitness detail from John. He says, there was much grass in the place. In verses 11 through 13, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks... He distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Everyone sits, Jesus gives thanks, and literally a feast ensues. From all from five loaves and two fish. Now again, some have tried to explain away the miracle by saying the, the meal was symbolic and each person only took a bite to eat. But John makes it clear as an eyewitness that the people ate as much as they wanted or, or until they had eaten their fill. In other words, till their bellies were full. John wants it to be clear to all of us that this feeding was a supernatural event. In verse 12, it says, After everyone is full, Jesus has his disciples collect the leftovers that nothing may be lost. Or another way to understand that is that nothing may be wasted. That was a Jewish tradition. After collecting leftovers, the disciples had 12 baskets full of pieces of, of, of bread from the barley loaves. And again, this is another one of those significant details. The 12 baskets matter. The thousands fed by this miracle were what? Jewish, right? Makes it clear. We are in Israel. How many tribes made up Israel in the Old Testament? Say it. Twelve, that's right. Hmm, twelve tribes, twelve baskets. I wonder if there's a correlation. I bet there is. 
John records the feeding of the 5,000 in such a way that portrays Jesus, the Messiah, as the one who provides abundantly for his people. We need to see that. In this case, in the case of the feeding of the 5,000, it would be the Jews who receive this provision from the Lord. And in terms of witnesses, I stated earlier that this is one, if not the most public of all of the miracles that Jesus performed. And it's not insignificant that the miracle was to provide food for his people, especially when we consider the commentary that Jesus gives later in the chapter, which will ultimately cause many people to turn away from him. Jesus is the Lord who, in this case, provides food for his people. That was the need that they had. They had been doing what? They were pursuing Jesus. They wanted to see the miracles he could perform. They wanted to hear the things that he taught, and they were hungry, and Jesus met their need. He is the Lord who provides for his people. He still is. Through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death on the cross where he bore the punishment for our sins, and through his resurrection from the grave, he provides salvation, reconciliation to God for all who believe, and none who are his will be lost. He is the Lord who provides The crowd ate until their bellies were full, until they were physically satisfied. And we will see in a couple of weeks that because he filled their stomachs, the crowd pursued him even across the Sea of Galilee to learn more. They wanted more of this physical food that Jesus had to offer. That's dedication, right? It's one thing to follow someone up a hillside, but it's another thing to commandeer boats and and chase them across a sea. And it wasn't... Well, they had a problem. But, But the problem wasn't necessarily that they were greedy for too much food, but honestly that they were satisfied with too little. That they wanted food... But the one that they were pursuing could give them so much more. This reveals how misguided they were as a people, verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. As I mentioned before, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the misguided crowd in this case because in verses 22 through 59, this will become even more clear. But the people's response in verse 14 is telling. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, what prophet could they be referencing? Well, 
It's believed this is a reference to, to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. And, and this is a passage that we've seen before in our study of the Gospel of John, way back in chapter 1, when the delegation from the Jews show up to ask John the Baptist, Hey, who are you? All these people are coming to you to be baptized. What's the deal, man? Are you the Messiah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Well, what prophet is that? Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. Moses is speaking to the people, and he tells of another prophet that, that God would raise up from among them that would be like him, who, who, who would lead and guide and, and speak the words of God. And the people assume that, that Jesus must be this prophet. After all, Moses said the prophet would be like him, and, and Moses was leading the people when God provided the manna to feed them. Now Jesus has provided food, so it must be him, right? Are they wrong? Well, John doesn't really say that they're wrong. In fact, back in that day, in the, in the, in the first century, the there, there were some Jewish leaders that interpreted Deuteronomy 18 as being a messianic prophecy that Moses was talking about the Messiah. John doesn't give us that commentary that they were wrong in thinking that he was the prophet. Where they were wrong, D.A. Carson points out, is that they were misguided in their understanding of the significance of the miracle. They only saw their needs being met. They didn't see the provider that was before them. The one who was feeding them physical bread is indeed the bread of life sent from heaven to satisfy their spiritual, their spiritual starvation. That They failed to see their greater need, the spiritual, because of their focus on their physical need, their hunger. Now remember how we started Baxter's list of, uh, of Things that identify someone who is being led by their sensuality. We tend to think of sensuality as just being something that is, is sexual in nature. And that's not the case at all. It's being driven by our senses, controlled by our senses. Whether that, that sensuality be the need for food or the need for some other type of pleasure. The, the crowd had a fervor for what Jesus could give them. But they seemed to have little desire for him himself. And we'll see that later in the chapter. Verse 15, we see that this fervor for what he could give led to a desire to force him to be their king. But the king they desired was not the type of king that they needed. Brothers and sisters, we cannot come to Jesus on our own terms. That's not how it works. Now, if you've done anything online in the last 24 hours, at some point you've come across having to agree to something called terms and conditions, right? 
If you're making an online purchase and have to go pick something up, you have to check a box. Yes, I agree with the terms and conditions of how they do things. Or you're subscribing to a service, you have to agree to the terms and conditions. And what that means is they set the rules. I may just want my latest toy from Home Depot, but to get it through their process, I've got to agree to do it their way. Well, as it relates to how we come to Christ and our need for Christ and and God's requirement for our salvation, God sets the terms and conditions and he lays them out clearly in his word. And you hear these alluded to and preached upon and, and proclaimed by a number of people behind this pulpit because we recognize that we have to do it God's way. But understand something. In many ways, we are no different in terms of our ability to be tempted and pulled away from the true terms and conditions to to try to reinvent God as we think He ought to be and come to Him that way instead. The, The people wanted a king. Is Jesus a king? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the idea for what they wanted and the reality were polar opposites of one another. Jesus is not going to change his kingship to fit what they thought he should be. Why? Because their need was for who he really was. And we need to remember that, brothers and sisters, not just as we consider the gospel, but as we read the word of God, as we consider God's instruction to his people for the things that we are to love and what we should pursue and what we should care about as his followers. God sets the terms and conditions. And brothers and sisters, that is a great thing. Because when we set the agenda, mark my words, I don't care how smart you are, or how wise you may be, the further and further we depart from the truth, the worse we make it for ourselves. We cannot imagine a God as glorious as how he's revealed himself in his word. And we would do well as his people to embrace our limitations and submit to his reality. God sets the terms and conditions. We respond in faith. Yes, Lord. Yes. The crowd was led by their fleshly sensuality, and things aren't any different today. That's the reason there are demonic teachings out there, liberal theology that that denies the authority of Scripture, or or prosperity theology that, that, that elevates personal and temporary comfort above eternal glory and satisfaction in Christ. Those things exist because people are sensual. It is hard, unless the Spirit of God is at work, to call people to follow a God that calls us to die to our desires every day. But that's discipleship, brothers and sisters. That is the path to true happiness. Because let me tell you, 
from, from firsthand experience that, that each one of you, when you're honest, can, can, can relate to. The temporary pleasures of sin are just that. Temporary. And while there may be pain in the denying of, of yourself in the short term, the, the long-term peace and joy of being able to look back and see how the Spirit empowered your faithfulness in the midst of your time of need as you turn to God, as you cling to God, as you look to His Word and said, you know what, I'm fleeing from this sin. I'm going to do whatever I can do to get away from this temptation. I'm going to call a brother for help and ask him to pray. And I'm going to be honest, hey, I, I'm struggling right now with bitterness. Remind me what is true. Sister. Sister calling a sister in this instance. I, I'm, I, I'm wrestling with, with lustful thoughts towards someone other than my husband. Help me out. Remind me what's true. That's hard to do. It's hard to admit we're weak. It's hard not just to give in to the desire. Oh, well, they're just thoughts. Who am I going to hurt? It's just anger. I'm going to let it fester a little while. What? They don't even know I'm mad at them. Every time we do not seek to do it God's way, resist the sensuality that is present within all of us, we give the devil a foothold for more temptation in our lives. Brothers and sisters, we must guard our hearts and our minds and our lives against those impulses to be led by our senses when we've been called to submit to the authority of God's word. Jesus, who stood before thousands who had nothing to eat and provided abundantly for them in their physical need, is the one who will satisfy and sustain us in our time of need as well. Now, I will speak of myself in this case because I don't want to offend you, but many of us aren't struggling with true physical hunger. Our sensual needs lie elsewhere. But Jesus is no less of a provider for our way of escape when it comes to temptation as well. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you, but, what, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Here comes the provision. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. He provides he provides, do we believe, do we believe that we'll be satisfied in the way of escape? He gave his life 
to set us free from the power of sensuality and its reign in our lives. That power, even though it seems strong at times in our weakness, is a broken power, that power of sin. We would do well to embrace the reality of who we now are in Christ. Now again, I'm not talking about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps Christianity. We're talking full-on dependence on God, His Word, His Spirit to empower us. But we got to believe what He said. I've got to believe what He said. No matter what my senses may be telling me, and whether that be grief, whether that be something else that, that, that is going on in my life, there, there, it comes to that point where we have to realize that, that we are going to cling to something. We are going to run somewhere. And where is it going to be? And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. We need to purpose in our hearts this day and every day that when those moments arrive, it's going to be to the cross where we flee. Not to the refrigerator, not to the World Wide Web, not to some other distraction. But in our need, we are going to cling to the one who provides and the one who satisfies. And some of you are thinking, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. That's what we need. Well, understand something. It's not just now. It's 30 minutes from now. Yeah, you know what? That's right. I've got to cling to him in my weakness. It's tomorrow morning when you wake up and you face that boss again. Yeah, it's now. I've got to run to him. It's tonight when you're trying to go to sleep and that, that memory that you've been trying to forget your whole life, that, that image that is seared into your mind is coming back or that event that is severed in your mind and, and you're wanting to, 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 to think about it and, and, and stew on it and get angry about it or to, or to lust over it, that's the time. Yeah, I'm going to run to the cross. Lord, you tell me in your words to, to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. I don't even know how to do that right now. Help me. You're going to run to him, and he's going to satisfy, because that's who he is. But it's not a one and done. It is never a one and done. It is a way of life. One of the first prayers that you utter in the morning when you open your eyes after you give thanks for another day of life, Lord, help me to be satisfied in you no matter what I face in my weakness today. We see a glorious Savior in John 15, a, a, a benevolent and loving provider in John chapter 6. But if we're not careful, we'll also see ourselves in the crowd. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you and... praise you. You know this is a 
preaching of someone who is so desperate to cling to you each and every day in my own weakness. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that what they hear is not condemnation but exhortation to recognize that there is truly only one who ultimately satisfies the needs of our hearts. Help us, Lord, to walk faithfully. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. My soul finds rest in God alone, my rock and my salvation, a fortress strong against my foes, and I will not be shaken. The lips may bless and hearts may curse, and lies like arrows pierce me. I'll fix my heart on righteousness. I'll look to Him who hears me. Oh, praise Him, hallelujah, my delight and my reward. Everlasting, never failing, my Redeemer, my God. Find rest, my soul, in God alone, amid the world's temptations, when evil seeks to take a hold, I'll cling to my salvation, though riches come and riches go, don't set your heart upon them, the fields of hope in which I sow.
Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We are dismissed.